Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's VCCR Rounds. I'm your host, Sean Kane. Today we'll be speaking with Ishak Lott, PharmD, FCCM, FCCP, BCPS, BCCCP about nuanced atrial fibrillation in patients with septic shock. Dr. Lott is the Associate Director of Clinical Pharmacy Services at Rush University Medical Center and a practicing critical care pharmacist. He has been interested in and an avid researcher in the field of shock syndromes and new onset atrial fibrillation. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures you'd like to share? I do not. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into it in terms of why patients with septic shock tend to have this issue of atrial fibrillation. Dr. Lott, would you kind of uh, run us through some of the pathophysiology of why patients end up in AFib when they go into, a, let's say, an ICU with septic shock? Yeah, I think it's uh, really interesting to me that you have a syndrome that seems to be a complex interplay between patient-specific risk factors, iatrogenic causes possibly by treatments being offered, and then a fair amount of unknown still as to what exactly triggers specific patients to develop new-onset AFib. For example, a fair number of the patients that uh, present to the ED in septic shock, by a fair number, I mean about a third by most recent studies looking at septic shock resuscitation, about a third of patients coming in are taking some sort of home medicine, antihypertensive, be it a beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, a thiazide diuretic, or something along those lines. So there is a very real possibility that for some of these patients, they may still have some of these medicines in their serum and affecting the pathophysiological response to sepsis in some way or possibly exaggerating it in some way in terms of their hypotension. Presumably, this means that they likely will require more vigorous resuscitation compared to other types of patients, whether it's more food being given or more vasopressor being administered. When you couple that with what types of goal map to set as a target for resuscitation, it drives what dose or how aggressive you are in terms of titrating some of these therapies to achieve that, which in a patient that may be predisposed to it in some way may be more likely to develop a nuanced atrial fibrillation episode. What's really interesting is that in a fair number of work that's being published in the last about five or six years or so, it's been identified now that not only is nuanced AFib something that occurs within the context of the IC population, but it actually affects patient outcomes and long-term outcomes even after uh, they leave the ICU. They're uh, predisposed to greater levels of morbidity, be it stroke or uh, recurrent atrial fibrillation, or in some studies, even a greater risk of dying before they leave the hospital and even after they leave the hospital within or up to a year to five years out. So when we're talking about AFib and sepsis, can you give the listeners kind of a a concept of how common it is that we see sepsis-induced AFib in the ICU? Sure. That's a really good question is how often does something even happen? And by most estimates, it happens about 5 to 10% of the time. So most patients that come in that have never had a documented episode of atrial fibrillation or diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, um, new onset atrial fibrillation will happen in about 5 to 10 out of every 100 patients. And I'm sure also those who come in with chronic AFib, they're probably predisposed to their AFib kind of acting up and getting AFib with RVR that requires some, some medical intervention to kind of slow down their ventricular rate too. 
Exactly. And so there are really good estimates on how many patients actually come in with baseline atrial fibrillation, but you can expect that in a setting where they're being exposed to catecholamine infusions, that, that atrial fibrillation will likely be exacerbated. Yeah. And as you said, you know, once we see a patient who comes in with sepsis, has new onset AFib, it's a predictor of morbidity and mortality, right? But even in the acute setting, I'm sure that patients who go into AFib are more likely to have, let's say, hemodynamic instability because of their AFib. Exactly. It's And it's kind of a chicken before the egg or chicken or egg before the chicken type sort of uh, dilemma is which one comes first is uh, you have a patient with a rapid ventricular rate that doesn't allow for adequate cardiac filling and subsequently uh, sufficient cardiac output to meet oxygen demands in the peripheral tissues, or possibly you're giving them drugs to try to treat it that only further exacerbate the tachyarrhythmia um, in some of these patients. Subsequently, the treatment options that are even available could only worsen or potentially worsen the hemodynamics of a patient in shock. So, for example, if you're looking at amiodarone or esmolol or um, beta blockers or calcium channel blockers in general, all of them come with side effects of hypotension and some level of dronotropic and chronotropic effect as well, which is already really complicated in these patients. Yeah, so we'll get to the management here in a second, but before we get there, what do we know from the existing literature about management decisions from a a randomized perspective point of view? Um, So there really isn't uh, a lot out there at this point, and this is the interesting part of uh, nuanced atrial fibrillation, sort of in its infantile phases of uh, discovery and, and knowledge development. When you look at options that are available evidence to treat it, there's really a single-center study looking at esmolol, uh, not necessarily for the treatment of uh, patients with atrial fibrillation, but all patients with tachyarrhythmias in the ICU. And there are some smaller studies looking at cohort groups of diltiazem versus metoprolol or diltiazem versus verapamil, but there really isn't anything of a large enough number or multi-center that uh, describes how to effectively treat it. Do we know anything about some of the predictors that cause nuance AFib, such as vasopressor selection or MAP goals that could potentially be more of a preventative strategy versus a treatment strategy? Yeah, and that's a really good question because I think when we look at a lot of the sepsis resuscitation studies in the, over the course of the last decade to two decades, in general, what we've really been doing is lumping rather than splitting. And I think we're getting to a point now where we're identifying specific idiosyncrasies of uh, groups of patients within the larger cohort of shock patients that maybe require a more personalized approach. So, for example, when you look at the SOAP-2 trial, certainly dopamine was associated with a greater incidence of tachyarrhythmias and specifically nuanced atrial fibrillation compared to norepinephrine. Uh, when you look at the sepsis spam study that looked at a higher MAP pressure compared to a lower MAP target, patients who had a higher MAP target ended up receiving greater amounts of norepinephrine, which also was associated with a greater incidence of tachyarrhythmias and nuanced atrial fibrillation. So there is some evidence to suggest that the therapy being provided and the therapeutic target may influence the development of nuanced atrial fibrillation. And I'm, I'm sure that things like data from the SOAP2 trial have kind of been woven into the sepsis guidelines and that something like norepinephrine is more the preferred vasopressor over dopamine simply for the reason that you said. Exactly. It does still leave in question a fair amount of 
it may not necessarily just be the drug that's being selected, but it may be more a question of how that drug is being used. Mm-hmm. How it's being dosed and how it's being titrated uh, may influence other uh, outcomes. Excellent. So as, as you mentioned earlier, up to, let's say, 10% of patients presenting in the ICU with sepsis will, in fact, end up with atrial fibrillation, new onset AFib. And there's really kind of two questions that end up um, on rounds when these uh, patients do present, and it's basically, what do you do with the rate or the rhythm, and then should you anticoagulate those patients? So why don't we start with rate versus rhythm control? And, you know, we have a lot of data on the outpatient side for rate versus rhythm control and chronic AFib. And as you said, we don't have a, a good amount of data, but what are some of the pros and cons of rate versus rhythm control? And what is your typical strategy when you're evaluating patients in the ICU? Yeah, that's <laughs> a loaded question, if you will, because there really is no large randomized control trial that suggests or uh, uh, provides any level of evidence in terms of what to do with these patients. So it ends up becoming more of an individualized approach. And I would hazard a guess that if we were to poll five intensivists or five pharmacists or five ICU clinicians, we probably would get seven or eight different answers, mainly because the lack of available data and then people's biases towards one type of drug over another. Strictly looking at the AHA guidelines or ACLS guidelines, anyone with compromised atrial fibrillation, meaning that they're hypotensive or in shock, the guidelines would suggest that you cardiovert them with direct current cardioversion. This is challenging, though, in patients that are exposed to continuous infusions of catecholamine. So even though you may cardiovert them for a short period of time, my experience, and I'm sure the experience of many people out there, is that many of these patients will end up reverting back to the atrial fibrillation episode that they're experiencing. And probably a lot of that is due to the fact that you haven't really addressed the underlying cause, right? And that it's mediated primarily by the catecholamines, the fluids, the inflammatory markers of sepsis, and that DCC is just going to temporarily fix the problem, but not the underlying cause of it, right? Exactly. And that's a really good point, which is we haven't really identified the underlying issue, or nor have we adequately treated the underlying issue. So then if we're putting direct current cardioversion as a potential option, what are some of the other options that are commonly used given that there's no good quality data to support one specific approach versus another? So the approach that's typically taken, and I'm sure in many ICUs at this point, is rate control. But there are so many questions that stem off of this, which is, um, well, if we're going to shoot for rate control, what's what rate target are we shooting for? Is it less than 110, which is what's probably best supported in the outpatient population? Is it a heart rate less than 95, which is what was studied in the single center study from Italy with esmolol infusion? Or is it a heart rate less than 80? So the first dilemma that comes up is what target heart rate should you shoot for? And the second question that naturally stems off of that is what agent should one use to help achieve that outcome? I think in many cases, what the approach that I've taken is that um, you personalize a heart rate goal to whatever heart rate it is that allows for a stable blood pressure or MAP target to be achieved. So if you have a, a significant enough tachydysrhythmia such that the patient requires escalating doses of catecholamine to support their blood pressure, uh, well, we need to get that in check first. And so we need to be able to establish effective circulating pressure. So my answer to that typically is whatever heart rate it takes to get there which in many patients tends to be about 100 or so, or maybe even less than 100. Uh, Again, acknowledging that there isn't really a lot of evidence for this. 
The second question then is what agent should you use? And increasingly, there's a greater level of interest in beta blockers, specifically things like Esmolol. Esmolol is really beneficial because it has such a short onset of action and such a short duration of action that it's one administered by continuous infusion and in most cases lasts only for 9 to 10 minutes. And so you can eat it adequately titrated from minute to minute to get the heart rate goal that you would desire. The downside of a beta blocker is that it's a beta blocker and you're administering a beta blocker to someone who's actively experiencing hypotension. And so there is a potential to worsen the hypotension. What is interesting in the available literature that's out there regarding as well in this scenario is that it tends to normalize cardiac output and driving pressures such that in many cases uh, you're actually able to reduce the catecholamine dose which seems a little counterintuitive, but uh, as you sort of make the logical connections between hemodynamics and rate control and then uh, driving pressure, it makes sense. It just takes a little bit of a leap to get there. So when you've used Esmolol in the ICU that you work in, do you typically give a loading dose, or do you just kind of start as a normal continuous infusion without that bolus? We typically will just skip the bolus and start the infusion, Mm -hmm. Uh, again, because it has such a quick onset of action and right. such a duration of action. And then for the doses of Esmolol that you're typically using, are you getting up to something like 200 micrograms of it, or are you able to kind of stay at the lower doses to achieve your, your rate goals? I, I can't say that I've discerned a pattern in one way or another in terms of achieving that dose, and I think some of that is predicated by what stage the patient is and in their shock and what therapies they've received up to then. I will caution uh, clinicians with this is that Esmolol comes in a fair amount of volume. And so if you're giving it as a continuous infusion and you're reaching high doses, you will probably observe that you're giving a fair amount of IV fluids in. And that is also something else that needs to be accounted for in the setting of shock resuscitation. Yeah, and we, and we didn't spend a lot of time on it, but it sounds like there may be some data suggesting that very aggressive fluid resuscitation strategies may predispose patients to, to actually have new onset AFib. Is that correct? True. The amount of fluids and possibly even the choice of fluids Hmm. um, might be something that uh, influences the development of nuance of atrial fibrillation. So I I accept that many clinicians may have seen Esmolol for rate control in patients with AFib and sepsis. Um, At least in the settings that I've worked in, I've seen a lot of IV amiodarone and IV digoxin loading doses. Can you briefly comment on either of those as well? Sure, absolutely. I think most people tend to think of amiodarone as sort of uh, analogous to the broad-spectrum antiarrhythmics uh, yeah. of, of cardiology, uh, similar to perhaps a piperacillin tazobactam or carbapenem from any infective sort of uh, uh, classes. Um, it acts on just about every different type of receptor that you want. There are a couple notable pharmacokinetic challenges to amiodarone. One is that it has a, a large volume of distribution which opens itself up to two things. One is a longer time to achieve its therapeutic outcome. And two is that uh, it opens itself up to inducing a fair amount of toxicities, be it endocrinological, uh, pulmonary, or just about any of a whole host of uh, amiodarone-related toxicities. Uh, the third one that I'll mention really quickly is that may also, it is a cardioverting agent. And so it may unintentionally actually cardiovert a patient from neonsid atrial fibrillation to, to uh, normal sinus rhythm. That being said, it's also been observed idiosyncratically enough with traditional rate controlling agents as well. So there is that with amiodarone. 
Um, the challenge with digoxin is that it, its mechanism of action is not one that tends to work well in scenarios where there's a sympathetic response. And so one, to be able to achieve normal sinus rhythm again or be able to convert the patient is more probably unlikely um, than anything else. And similar to amiodarone, because of its metabolic route, it has a fair number of drug-drug interactions that opens itself up to, whether it's um, antifungal agents or amiodarone or vice versa with digoxin themselves. Just to piggyback on that, as you mentioned with amiodarone, digoxin also has a similar problem in that it takes a while for its therapeutic effect to have an onset because it takes a while to get that digoxin into the cardiac tissue. There's kind of a transport process that has to happen that takes a couple hours. So um, that's one of the reasons why clinicians may see something like Q6-hour digoxin loading doses is that when you give your dose, it takes a couple hours to see the effect. And then typically that loading dose is waiting for the first dose to take effect before you give your second loading dose. It's a really good point. And it's a point that may apply to a fair number of other drugs as well is how to rate control or effect uh, effectively implement the desired outcome, um, whether it's rate control or rhythm control, in some of these patients when they may have a greater predominance of uh, myocyte tissue, either because of hypertrophy or some other level of uh, dysfunction. So uh, as we mentioned, there's kind of two sides to the coin of treating these AFib patients. One is rate or rhythm control, and then the second is worrying about clot formation, specifically on the left side of the heart, that could cause a patient to have something like uh, an embolic stroke as we would see in those chronic AFib patients. So first off, I guess the question is, do we have a lot of data on the stroke risk for this nuanced version of AFib? And then two, do we really know if we should fully anticoagulate or not anticoagulate these patients? We really don't. Um, I think what most clinicians are accustomed to is extrapolating the annual risk of uh, atrial fibrillation-induced cardioembolic stroke um, and then applying a model where they estimate that risk on a daily basis. Um, what's important to note, though, is those numbers are extrapolated from an outpatient population, which, again, are patients that are a lot less sick. And so probably the best evidence that exists is the work done by Waukee and colleagues, where they looked at patients in California uh, admitted with septic shock and estimated the rates of new cardioembolic stroke due to nuanced atrial fibrillation. Patients were at greater risk, and so it stands to reason that patients that are in the acute setting of their atrial fibrillation are probably at the highest risk of developing cardioembolic events due to their nuanced atrial fibrillation. Exactly how much, though, is really hard to estimate, and uh, making a model-based assumption off that is just really hard to do at this point. And I think given that we don't have a good deal of data in terms of what the actual stroke risk is, I think we also have to be cognizant that giving something like a heparin drip or a full-dose low-molecular weight heparin, there are risks associated with that that, especially in an ICU patient population, uh, may be magnified because of things like procedures that are done. And if a patient is fully anticoagulated, that may impact their ability to have a procedure or the risks associated with receiving a procedure that they may need emergently or urgently. So there is a risk of giving that anticoagulant that I think is sometimes overlooked by clinicians. That's a really good point. It stands to reason that most of these patients are likely really sick with multi-system organ failure. And so one of the other things that happens is that most of these anticoagulant drugs tend to accumulate in the setting of 
uh, multi-system organ failure, either because they're not able to get sufficiently excreted through the urine or because their pharmacokinetic modeling just isn't appropriate sometimes for someone who's in uh, multi-system organ failure. And on top of that, things even like coagulopathies, DIC, low platelet counts, all of these things, as you mentioned, you know, this is not the typical outpatient anticoagulation picture, right? Exactly. So in terms of the uh, anticoagulation strategy, given that we don't have a lot of data, what do you typically see in your practice in terms of no anticoagulation, aspirin, all the way up to a full anticoagulant, such as a heparin or a low molecular weight heparin? Whenever possible, we've tended to use a heparin infusion titrated to a therapeutic PTT. Now, what's interesting about anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation is, again, a lot of this is extrapolated from the outpatient patient population. For example, we don't know what level of anticoagulation or what intensity of anticoagulation is appropriate for patients with new-onset atrial fibrillation. I'll draw a quick analogy. When you look at the outpatient population, you can uh, most clinicians will do a CHADS VAS score and either categorize their patients to no therapy, uh, aspirin, or possibly full anticoagulation with warfarin or one of the newer oral anticoagulant agents. Also, depending on their has-blood score, they'll make the determination of whether or not anticoagulation is appropriate for that patient's population. So you have anything from on the spectrum from nothing to an antiplatelet therapy to a full anticoagulation with either warfarin or one of the other uh, novel oral anticoagulants. On the inpatient population, you could, a similar analogy would be nothing. Uh, heparin sub-Q or some prophylactic dose of uh, anticoagulant to a full intensity anticoagulation, whether it's with unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin or any of the other oral anticoagulants even, or possibly even direct thrombin inhibitors. And so uh, we don't quite know that, much less what, again, what target to shoot for. When you look at available existing guidelines, the determination for what anticoagulation target to shoot for is extrapolated again from the outpatient population, whether, and really the intent is therapeutic anticoagulation. But we don't know that a different PTT range or different um, anti-factor 10A range would be sufficient in some cases. And so, again, there's a fair amount of unknown here, but by most uh, default settings, most practical clinicians will uh, initiate an unfractionated heparin and titrate to a therapeutic range. So clearly there's a lot of room for clinical judgment based on the, the you know patient's clinical status and things like that. And clearly this is an area ripe for research in the future then. Exactly. Just to kind of wrap things up, I know that you've talked a lot about treating AFib as a new paradigm in terms of it being more of a, a risk factor. Would you mind just kind of sharing your viewpoint in terms of this new paradigm for observing new onset AFib in patients with sepsis? Yeah, absolutely. I think what's interesting is that probably the best analogy I can to uh, compare this exist or emerging phenomenon of new onset atrial fibrillation and the setting of septic shock is probably something similar to delirium and the setting of pain analgesia and, and delirium management for patients of mechanical ventilation. For a long time, we thought that we as ICU clinicians thought the appropriate management was really just simply managing someone's sedation and analgesia while they're on mechanical ventilation. And then due to a body of work that emerged, identified a new phenomenon that could be either um, iatrogenic or some level of underlying patient-specific components that could develop uh, delirium, which actually exposed the patients to a greater level of morbidity and mortality. I think we're probably identifying something really similar with new-onset atrial fibrillation now, where you have patients that come in with septic shock, um, need resuscitation and and effective 
uh, therapy to restore organ function and oxygenation, but either do a combination of underlying genetic predisposition or underlying comorbidities and to the application of resuscitation therapy, um, some cohort of patients will develop a new, newly emerging and defining syndrome of new-onset atrial fibrillation, which predisposes a patient to a greater risk of morbidity and mortality. And I think really when you think about new-onset atrial fibrillation, we're just now sort of at the beginning stages of identifying what causes it, who's at risk for it, uh, what therapies exacerbate it, uh, what therapies are modifiable or what risk factors are modifiable and can be removed or modified in some way that uh, reduces the risk? And how do we get to a point where we're designing therapeutic trials that also account for this adverse outcome? I love it. So it sounds like, again, this is an area ripe for research and any listeners who are interested in this topic, um, certainly this is an area that will be explored in greater depth in the future, and hopefully the listeners will take the call and consider research projects regarding risk factors and outcomes and treatments for this really important disorder among patients with sepsis. Absolutely. Dr. Lott, thank you very much for your time and expertise today. For the listeners, thank you for joining us today. This concludes this episode of the VCCR Rounds podcast. If you have topic or specific questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, please tweet your input to at SCCM and use the hashtag VCCR Rounds, V-C-C-R-O-U-N-D-S. For the VCCR Rounds podcast, I'm Sean Kane. Thank you. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois, with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois, with a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info 
at sccm.org.